You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, this is a week of gift giving. And as I sat around uh, this week, Christmas time, I thought of the many gifts that were given and received at our house. And it made me think, what makes a gift good? Now, like most of you, we we sat around in my house on Christmas uh, morning and opened up gifts from each other, from family members, and it was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience. The time itself was a gift uh, that I received. But as I sat around and received wonderful gifts and actually thought I gave some pretty good gifts, too, um, I was excited, and it made me think, what makes a gift good? Now, we know that a gift's good because we have context for that. We've seen the the value and the worth of gifts, but we also have seen the other side of gifts given. If you're like me, uh, you you know, I have about a 50-50 success rate on gifts. And sometimes it's like, ooh, I'm glad the gift receipt is here. That's good. Um, (laughs) But one one gift that... um, this, made, this thought made me think of was a gift that is very familiar to my family. On Christmas Day, after all the presents have been opened at our house, our tradition is normally to uh, go over to my wife's grandmother's and sit in her house. It's, uh, it's about a, the living room is about a 12-person living room, and we put about 30 people in it. And the, the, the stove is cranked up. I'm usually wearing a nice wool sweater. And that's how the scene is set. But it's a wonderful time. Uh, as I've grown, uh, grown up in this family over the last 15 years uh, of being, meeting my wife and, and getting married, uh, I've seen some wonderful experiences there. One of the best experiences of the day, though, comes near the end when we've all eaten, we've all spent time, we gather and we sit around the living room and we bring out the $5 white elephant gifts. (laughs) And we exchange this. I don't know if you've played this with your family or with friends at work. You you draw numbers and you go around and you pick the present you want. It's either the unwrapped present that you can open or you look around and you think, who has a present I want to steal? Those M&M's, Christmas M&M's, I don't know. That six-pack of root beer, maybe, you know. It's all, it's all about where your number is and what you can steal. Well, the highlight of the time is when someone gets that gift. It's usually in a little box or a bag about this size, and someone opens it up, and we are just wrought with anticipation. We're looking at it because we, we know what it is. And the person opens it up. There they are. That familiar re-gifted gift. <laughs> the Matthews family nose trimmers. <laughs> this, this is a gift that has gone around the family for years. 
And we know it's coming back. In fact, you really want to get that gift because you know your $5 gift is taken care of when you end up with that gift. (laughs) Now, that gift in and of itself is fairly worthless. The batteries are long dead and no one has replaced them. They really, I got them one year and really, they shouldn't be called nose trimmers, they should be called nose hair pullers. Which makes the gift even worse, used nose hair trimmer. <laughs> but it brings, a, it, the, the room erupts in laughter whenever we open that. And whoever gets that gift, that is the gift you are most excited to receive on Christmas. Now, that gift, you take it home and you put it in the closet and you bring it out again on Christmas Day next year. It's not a gift that means a whole lot to you other than that momentary flash of laughter. It also, it made me think about, that kind of gift made me think about what, are, what is the value in a gift? What does it mean? I received a gift a number of years ago from a friend, and it really, it, it was an inconsequential gift. It wasn't expensive. It was a, it actually wasn't Christmas, it was a birthday, and I woke up, I worked at a summer camp, and I looked out, and on the porch of my cabin, where I was a counselor, was a can of Mountain Dew with dandelions in it and i i looked at that and i was like that's amazing and the note was from a friend who said i notice you drink mountain dew every day and so happy birthday and that gift was was small but it was valuable to me because that friend noticed who i was noticed what i did throughout the day and gave me something of meaning toward that now i also uh another gift i received one time was this, this box. Now, it might not mean much to other folks, but to me, this box has great value because I, when I was younger, a friend gave me an old cigar box and said, hey, this is a box and it's empty. You know, I looked inside, oh, what's in here? $100 or no, just a box. But they said, it's your job to fill this box with things that mean something to you. So I started putting letters or movie stubs or memorable things. I'm a bit sentimental, so this box really, uh, the box that I was given really meant something to me. Well, as I filled that box, I got another box, and I filled that one, and then I got another one. And a few years later, I realized, oh, I'm a box collector, because I had a number of wood boxes with all of the memories uh, up on my shelf. And one, one birthday, uh, uh, my friend gave me a present. I opened it up and she said, these are, this is another wood box for you. Uh, this is one that you can share the memories that we have. It was the same friend who had given me that pop can. And of course, I had to marry her. <laughs> <laughs> now, those gifts meant something to me because she gave them to me noticing and being aware of the things that meant something to me. Now, in the gifts that we give to each other, we can usually replicate them uh, in some way. We can go out and buy another box. We can, buy, we can buy another can of Mountain Dew. But the meaning behind them uh, is what gives that gift value and worth. Today, our scripture... Oh, you'll notice in the bulletin as well, our scripture... Uh, 
is not from Isaiah. We've already read that. You know, on the way to church this morning, I thought, oh, I don't really like that scripture. I think I'll do a different sermon. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It was a misprint. So um, our, our scripture today comes from Luke chapter 3. And we've already seen uh, the scene for this set with our baptisms this morning. This scripture is, is shared uh, in context. It is the first narrative following the birth of Jesus and the genealogy of, of Christ. It comes to, uh, we, we fast forward a number of years, and uh, Jesus is coming along uh, to his, his cousin and friend, John the Baptist. Uh, so if you'll stand with me, we'll read Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. When I'm done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, respond by saying, thanks be to God. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. The grass fades and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord is eternal and lasts forever. Please be seated. In baptism, Jesus received something, a gift, a gift that we were incapable of and utterly unable to make happen on our own. Jesus received this. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are beloved. With you, I am well pleased. I am well pleased. That is the identity that God passed on to Jesus and ultimately to us. You know, I love... I love when I'm reading something and I see irony. I love humor, and, and I think irony is a wonderful way um, to, to add meaning to something through humor. And in this, the, Luke gives us some irony. He uses this word. Now, I know Earl's preaching next week, so I'm going to prepare us a little bit with a Greek word. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't normally do this, but we were probably a little rusty, so we need to get back into it. Um, the word well-pleased in, in the Greek is eudokesa. It's only used two, uh, two other times in the New Testament. It's a fair, fairly, in the Septuagint in the Old Testament, it's a fairly familiar concept. It's the same word in the Old Testament that Enoch walked with God and God was well-pleased. Uh, Moses walked with God. It's usually in a walking with, so a time spent with. God is pleased to spend that time. In this case... The irony falls in, it's only used two other times, once in 1 Corinthians and once in Hebrew, Hebrews, uh, both having to do with times uh, when people drop the ball. The, the first time in 1 Corinthians, it's alluding to when Moses uh, was walking in the wilderness and he was leading the people and they wanted water. Moses asked God, how do I get water? God said, ask from the rock and I will produce water. The people started applying the heat to Moses, and he decided to do it subtly different. Instead of asking of the rock, he struck the rock with his staff, 
And in that action, it says that God was displeased. Same word. The other time, that's actually that's in Isaiah when, when Ray read that earlier, that, that, that root from the stump of Jesse that comes out, and with his word strikes the rock and the goodness comes out with his words. I think, he's, I think the prophet is alluding to Jesus' baptism when God says, I am well pleased. On one hand, every action that has been done is displeasing. Well, now you are pleasing to me. The other time in Hebrews is when the, the Israelites were wandering in the desert for years in the desert. You know, it was called the promised land. I think for them, they probably just called it the land or fill in the blank of whatever expletive they might want to use. Because after years and years, they might have forgotten what that promise was after 40 years of wandering. So they grumbled. And it says when they grumbled, God was displeased. That identity of one who displeases God. This group of people who is incapable of pleasing God. As George shared in his sermon a couple weeks ago, Jesus came to fulfill a role. A role in the nation of Israel and the people, but also a role for us. And that is the role of champion. And it's a priestly role. It's, it's fashioned after Moses, uh, as Moses intermediated for the people. Moses interacted with God on behalf of the people. And then Moses interacted with the people on behalf of God. There was always something in the way. There was a person in the middle who needed to stand in that place. That's where the priestly role comes in. Uh, the, some traditions uh, value highly the role of priest. Uh, they're the only ones who can do certain things in the life of the church. When I was ordained, uh, or looking towards ordination in the Presbyterian Church, a mentor pastor told me, he said, you know, when you receive that stole, the, we don't necessarily wear those except for the, the velvet here on our robes, when, do you know what that symbolizes? And I, you know, graduate of Princeton, I had no idea. Uh, <laughs> he, he said, that is the yoke of Christ. That priestly role, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it looked forward or it looked back to the person of Jesus Christ as the one who Hebrews 5 calls the one who emerges from the order of Melchizedek, the priestly one. Jesus is the one who stands in that place and receives what we are utterly incapable of receiving on our own. He receives that identity as beloved. You are mine. With you, I am well pleased. You know, the value of that gift is amazing because we can't conjure up its worth. We can't recreate it. It is a once and for all gift that's given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We remember it through our sacrament of baptism in the same way that Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his ministry and the end, the night before he left, before his crucifixion. We know the beginning of the story, the birth, the manger. We also know the end, the resurrection on that Sunday morning, that good news to all. The night before he went out, he said, go and baptize all nations, make disciples. That baptism is the identity that we receive that we can't give to ourselves. The good news is that we are loved. We've been given that identity that we couldn't step into on our own. And it is ours, and it is sealed by the work, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gift that we receive. It's amazing.
that answers probably the deepest question that we have is, are we worthwhile? What it, what it might leave, if you're like me, I'm a somewhat practical person. When I leave the sanctuary, I want to know, well, what do I do? <laughs> How do I live this out? When I'm talking with young families and um, other folks, the most common question I get is, how do I use my time? How, what do I do on Monday through Saturday to live this out? I know what to do when I get here. Sing, listen to, to the word of God, uh, proclaim and have fellowship. How do I live that out in a good way throughout the week? I think these two texts are connected. The temptation of Jesus Christ in chapter 4 and the baptism of Jesus in chapter 3. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. It is written, Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him again, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. This interaction happened right after the baptism. Jesus receives his identity from the Father. And then he goes to have that identity tested in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, do this. The test that Jesus faced, I think, reiterates the same message of the baptism. That Jesus has stood in our place and received something we couldn't bring to ourselves. Now Jesus is the model and the example of how to live that out. It doesn't say, go and do this, make sure you do A, B, and C, and you'll be good. It says, Jesus says here, every time he's tempted, when the devil says, hey, I'm going to test your identity. If you are the Son of God, then feed yourself. Jesus, I think, held on to that identity. It was set. So when he moved from that experience of it being set, he remembered who he was. It didn't matter what the test was. If he knew who he was in in the space before God, before his Father. So he goes out and the devil says, If you are the Son of God, change these stones. Change these breads, the stone into bread. 
Jesus says, you know what? I am the Son of God because I know that. And I'm not going to do that because I don't need to to establish my identity. I'm not going to take this opportunity to establish my own identity because that identity has been given to me by God. And it's an identity that I could never even come close to. In the next temptation, the the, uh, devil takes... Jesus up to the top of the mountain and says, all this can be yours. He basically offers him the sweetest job in the world. says, if you worship me, I'll put you above everything. It's, uh, it's in my power to do that. So what he does, what his identity feeds into what he does, the devil is testing him. Hey, I'll give you purpose. I'll give you something to do that will add to your identity and people will call you a leader. Jesus says, oh, that's a great deal. And, and being Jesus, I think he probably was looking ahead and knew that, as Paul writes in Philippians, that uh, Jesus would ascend to the right hand of God and every knee on earth and under the earth would bow and proclaim him as, as the risen Lord. Jesus said, no, that purpose in my life has been established And I am God's. I am not my own. I won't go outside of that identity to gather something for myself. You know, the next temptation, I think, is one that challenges me the most personally. Jesus is brought to Jerusalem. It's the culmination of his life. The place where his life was the, the culmination of his life. And the devil brings him up to a high place, and he says, throw yourself off, and the angels will protect you. Well, the irony in this is that Jesus would be in Jerusalem in a short time. He would be cast down. He would experience that life-threatening, life-ending event of crucifixion. He would experience salvation in that, the gift that God gave to all of us in the resurrection. What the devil was tempting him at this point was not what. He wasn't giving him a completely terrible thing and saying, hey, I'll make it good. He was saying, here is a wonderful thing that your life is heading toward, the grand finale. Just move up your timing. Just own the timing of that and experience the power that that brings. Jesus saw through that and he said, even my time is not my own. God has ordained my life and I will wait on the Lord for that. I will not put my God to a test and I will not take the power of owning my time because my identity is set as beloved, as one who is, who is God's and as one who is well-pleasing. You know, there's a temptation that we have every time we leave a place of good news is to say, oh, that was great, and I will leave it here. My challenge for us today is that God has a design for the identity of beloved to not be hoarded, to not be shoved into a closet, but to be freely given and freely administered in this world. The joy to this world enters through the person of Jesus Christ who received that gift of identity that none of us could achieve on our own. 
That gift is free, and that gift is for us. I think the greatest moment that we can have is when we do realize that. This grand story is told. These characters in the Bible are shared about. These narratives are told. And then we realize, oh, that story is for me. That love is for me. That identity is for me. What do we do when we receive that? We go into another story that reminds us of that, that says it is about Jesus. It is not about what we do. It doesn't start with what we do or who we are. It starts with whose we are and what identity we have stepped into. Then we have the freedom, the confidence, the ability to to be who we are uniquely. I'll end with this story of, I'm a children's pastor, so it has to go, you know, it has to go simple. Wallace and Gromit. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Wallace and Gromit, but Wallace and Gromit was created by a man named Nick Park, who lives in England. Nick Park went to a very prestigious art school. Uh, People from his school colleagues went on to create some of the greatest art in Europe over the last 20 years. Nick went home and played with clay. While all of his friends were doing shows in Paris and Milan and London, he, he went home and he thought, the greatest joy that I have, really, is creating these, these art forms in clay, really, for the benefit of my niece and nephew. That, that was the goal that he had after leaving this prestigious school. Well, the irony in that is also that Nick Park went on to win five Oscars, and, and is acclaimed around the world for the stories that he tells through these, these uh, characters. But if he would have gone out and said, I have to achieve beyond who I am, beyond the way God made me, he, never, he would have put his clay away and he would have in, endeavored to something else. But he took that simplicity of saying, what my heart is calling me to do and to be because of the identity that he has as a Christian that led to a beautiful thing being created. That is the joy that God invites us into, not only to be given gifts that are beautiful and creative and wonderful, but to be the givers of those as well, simply by living into the identity of beloved that comes through Christ. That is the joy that we have for this world. Father God, I thank you for the word that you give to us. I thank you that you have given to us an identity that transcends any action, any word, any accomplishment that we could provide. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Give us the vision. Give us the strength, the courage, uh, the humility to live into who we are and who you've created us. Beloved children, in your name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, Visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.